Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today, I just wanted to take you through some stories from my life. And uh, I think you'll see by the end why I'm thinking about a lot of this. I, I think, folks, in this arena, you're always trying to get to know these personalities better. You know, John DeLynn and Lindsay Hansen Park, Radio Free Mormon, John Larson. There are, and there's hundreds, there's a hundred others, right? Eugene England and uh, Dan Vogel. And again, we go on and on. But I thought today I would share a lot of pieces of my life so that you could get to know me better. Some of these stories have been told in other podcasts, but a lot of these haven't. Uh, I probably have intimated some portion or part of them, but generally speaking, a lot of this stuff will be new to you. I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful, really, for the life that I've had. And uh, it, it's been absolutely uh, amazing uh, to have lived out the life that I have. And uh, if I go back uh, to when I was a little kid, I lived on a, a dead-end street. My parents were pretty poor. My mom was a, uh, a nurse's aide. And my father worked in the asphalt business at an asphalt plant. But I think he started off maybe at a, at a quarry or at, in the road maintenance division. And uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money. If I go back and I look at the pictures of when I was a little kid, uh, you can tell that we didn't have access to the, the nicer clothes. I remember being a kid and some of my shoes, I, the kids made fun of me because they would talk about how my shoes were made out of plastic. And, and in all honesty, I remember like these shoes and, uh, and to some degree they were, and, but I didn't, re I didn't feel poor. Um, I lived on a, a, a small street again, maybe a half, third of a mile long or so. And uh, on that same street, I had uh, an uncle and an aunt, two cousins living in one house, just about three or four houses down from my home. And then, and then further uh, down the road towards the other end of it, I had another uncle and aunt who lived with uh, his or her parents, sorry, her parents and uh, had cousins that lived there as well. And so on this really cool street that I lived on, we, we spent time playing lots of sports, and that's really the, the thing we always played. My, my dad was very athletic, really good at baseball, but really athletic, and he loved sports. And uh, him and my uncle, who lived a few houses down, almost every Sunday they would get together with all the kids in the neighborhood like, like I'd go out and I'd find, you know, there's, we had six or seven, eight kids live on our street that were all about the same age. And we were always playing together. And every Sunday I'd try to get these kids gathered up. My dad would go like, look, if you get, if you get eight kids, I'll come out and play backyard football. And so we'd work our tail end off to find eight kids. Sometimes we had to call a friend or two outside the neighborhood. And then my dad and my uncle were the only two adults who played but then they'd gather, you know, several of us cousins and then other kids on the street that we were friends with. And we'd climb over a barbed wire fence and 
go into the Oakland Cemetery in Sandusky, Ohio, and there was a big spot of their land that wasn't used yet. And we would create a makeshift football field and we'd play backyard tackle football. And uh, I was always the first or second kid taken, and I was really good. Um, I had this knack for catching everything, and uh, I, I would always, I was a little bigger than the other kids, so I had this ability to kind of put my shoulder down and knock kids down, and, and, but I wasn't fast. I was probably one of the slowest, if not the slowest kid on the field, but I was always taken very early when teams were picked. Um, and I always saw that as I always was competitive. Like I have this, you know, athletic competitiveness to me and I had certain skills, but other things I really lacked. And, uh, and I'm going to bounce around time-wise. It's the only way I know how to put all these stories together. But I, my dad played baseball and I wanted to play baseball. And so I joined up uh, you know, Adam League, which is the really early stages of organized baseball. You know, the kids who are out in center field and they just aren't even paying attention. And that was me. I was a decent ball player, but I didn't really apply myself. I didn't really pay attention to what was going on. I just, I was always somewhere else. I was always inside my head daydreaming. And uh, my my mom and my dad got frustrated when I was in Adam League. They got frustrated that I wasn't they, they could see from practicing with me that I was better than most of the kids. But because I didn't apply myself, because I was always daydreaming, I, was, I really was never dependable. And so the coaches uh, would play, you know, the, the coaches are always the fathers of other kids and, and those kids played. And I always sat the bench for half a game. And so this went on for a year or two. And by the end of the second year, halfway through the season or so, my mom and my dad just pulled me off the team and they, they kind of chewed out the coach and basically said, Hey, you know, we know our kid is really good at baseball, but you guys don't want to play him, And we're just not going to waste our time doing this. If you're going to favor certain kids on the team and, and not favor some of the kids that actually have some talent. And, and it's the politics of sports. If anybody's ever had kids in athletics, you realize that certain kids get played more and other kids don't. And, and I say all that because it's easy. Some of you are going to go, Bill, maybe you just weren't that good. And I, I would just ask you to hold on a moment while I finish the rest of the story because I think you'll see that that's not the case. So then I get pulled off the team and I don't know how old I am. I'm, you know, eight years old or something, seven years old, something like that. And uh, as time goes on, uh, I, I don't play any more organized baseball. But again, the kids in the neighborhood play. We play baseball, basketball, or football almost every Sunday. And uh, again, I, I feel like I'm pretty good at football. I feel like I'm pretty good at baseball. But uh, basketball, I loved to play, but I, I wasn't really that great at. When I turned 12, uh, there were some kids at school that said, Hey, Bill, you should think about playing baseball again. And, uh, so I signed up as a 12 year old. That's the last year of little league. It's for 10 to 12 years old. I sign up and I'm put on to, uh, a, a team Poons is the name of the team named after a, a pub slash restaurant in my town. They were the sponsors. Of course, the way Little League works is all these companies sponsor teams. So you had Citizens Bank and the Exchange Club and 
uh, you know, Poons, um, all these various teams. And I join as a 12 year old who's played no organized baseball for four years. And I sit the first game, but over the course of, and I joined this team late. Like I'm, I joined the team like a week before their season starts. They had some kid drop off and they needed another player. And I signed up and paid the fee. So I get, I get drafted by this team. Um, and I don't play the first game. I sit half a game. I, I get like one at bat. I come in like at the, you know, sixth inning or something, play a couple innings and, and get one at bat. But over the course of uh, the first, you know, two weeks, a week before the game and a week after that first game, uh, I'm at practices and they can just see that I can hit the ball. So before long, I'm, I'm the cleanup hitter and I, I end up leading the team in RBIs, hit a grand slam home run. And I, I, we end up winning the World Series. I'm the starting shortstop. And when the starting pitcher isn't pitching, he's the shortstop. And I played first base. And uh, I make the, we win the World Series. Uh, I think we won it in three straight games, if I remember right. And uh, I made the traveling all-star team. And I remember in one of my first at-bats on the traveling all-star team, I hit an opposite field home run. One of the things too, is I was sort of ambidextrous. I, when I was a little kid, uh, I would try to color with my left hand and my dad would always take the crayon out of my left hand and he would put it into my right hand and he essentially forced me to be right-handed. And I got no negative about that. I, uh, I'm a right-handed person, but I can dribble with both hands. I can throw a football really far left-handed, not, not as far as I can right-handed, but further than anybody else around that I ever knew could throw a ball with their non-dominant hand. I had the ability to switch hit in baseball, never did it in organized baseball, but whenever we played pickup games, I would switch hit sometimes and, and could hit the cover off the ball. And uh, I played football as well. I was the starting center, starting linebacker slash defensive tackle uh, on my seventh and eighth grade football team. But towards the end of my eighth grade football year, Last practice before the last game, I was running or uh, like like running backwards through those uh, those met meshes that you would try to get your feet into the holes, and it would essentially try to be teaching you speed and coordination. And something gave out in my right knee, and uh, I I tore my ACL, but I didn't know it. And I went maybe six months with a torn ACL, really bad one, by the way, where my knee would constantly pop out of place and I would lay on the ground and extend my leg out as straight as I could and pop my knee back into place. I would continue to play backyard football and I'd, I'd wrap it up each time, but it would always get hit by somebody. It would pop out of place and I would try to pop it back in. And sometimes I couldn't. And my parents, when I was 12 years old, took me uh, took me and my brother to um, to Orlando, Florida, and we went to Disney World and uh, Universal Studios and all of that stuff, MGM, Epcot Center. We did everything. My dad worked his way up to being the foreman of an asphalt plant, so he is the head guy. So that tells you the sort of work ethic my dad had. He never called off work, ever. Didn't matter how sick he was. He, I think in my, you know, I'm 43 years old and I think my dad's probably called off work uh, four times or less in his life. Um, my mom went back to school to be an LPN and 
she did that about the time I was 12 years old as well. And so my parents worked themselves, they, they just worked their asses off and uh, got themselves to a point where they were a middle income family. And uh, they sold this little tiny house that we had, this little dead end street we lived on. It was like a 700 square foot home. It was two bedroom, the tiniest of bedrooms, the tiniest dining room, tiniest kitchen, bathroom, living room, nice little backyard, a lot of fun back there. But they sold that house and we lived in an apartment for a while and um, when we were living in the apartment, I took a job with the restaurant next door because it was the owner of the restaurant who also owned the apartments, Dick Schuster, Perkins Pancake House in Sandusky, Ohio. And I started off as a busboy making minimum wage then was $4.25. I started working as a busboy and very quickly um, established myself as the best of all the busboys uh, to the point where they started paying me more. And eventually they moved me to be the baker uh, of the restaurant along with two other bakers. And uh, I was making seven or eight bucks an hour at the time when minimum wage was $4 and, and 25 cents and always had decent amount of money with me. And I was quite proud of my work ethic, but I'd learned that from my parents. My mom and my dad were both that way as well and established themselves as, uh, as having some money. And so when we went on this vacation, again, 12 years old, we go to Orlando, Florida. Parents surprised us with this trip. And it was so epic. It was just all the things, just magic. You know, my mom and dad were good people. They really did a hell of a job raising us. And, um, but on this trip, my, my knee gave out and it wouldn't pop back into place. And I was just, I was in pain. And my mom and my dad finally said like, you know what, this thing isn't getting better. Let's take them to the doctor. And so they took me to the doctor and I had a torn ACL. And so I went in for surgery and, uh, they used my patella tendon and my right knee to reconstruct my, uh, anterior cruciate ligament. Um, recoup from that. But when I was 14 years old, I tore my left ACL playing basketball. And then I retore my left ACL when I was 16 years old, again, playing basketball. And so I had a, a torn ACL once in my right knee, twice in my left knee. And at that point, I just, I, I you know, from the 12 year old first ACL tear, I just had to give up sports. I, I couldn't play contact sports anymore. So I started playing golf. And I'd always played golf. My dad had always played golf. Um, I remember uh, this Christmas, I don't know how old I was, 10 years old or something, nine years old, eight years old. And my mom buys my dad a set of golf clubs for Christmas. And he went out with uh, some of his brothers, my uncle who lived a couple houses down and another uncle who lived uh, you know, a couple miles away. And they would go play golf all the time. And sometimes we get to go with them. And uh, so I played golf and I, when I got into high school, I, I didn't want to play contact sports anymore because I didn't want to risk my knee getting hurt. I remember having dreams all the time of feeling shame over not having gone out and played the football game. And so in my dreams, I would go and I'd go to the football games and play, but there was always some obstacle, something that kept me from playing. And obviously there's often these times that are 
our dreams are indicative of the things that we're struggling with in our feelings to deal with in real life. So my, uh, my freshman year might've been my sophomore year. I go out for the golf team and a lot of kids went out for uh, golf and we had a good golf team. Our golf team always went to state. Uh, in fact, I think we finished like fifth in state um, my senior year, or my junior year, but so many kids went out and for whatever reason, good for them. The coaches, two coaches decided not to cut kids, but there was this kind of dishonest thing that happened where um, there's the varsity team, the golf course that we played at was Wusicket golf course. And they had a, you know, front nine back nine and our varsity team played the front nine at Wasicket and our JV team played the back nine. And then all the misfits who went out for the golf team, we weren't told that we were the misfits and we weren't really part of the team, but they sent like seven of us to a, a second golf course. And it was the shittiest golf course in Sandusky, Ohio called keys golf course, public golf course, just not well-maintained almost as much dirt as there was grass and uh, these seven misfits. And, and, and if I could, you know, if I could name these kids and tell you about each of them and spend a whole episode telling about these kids, it, you would just know these were misfits. You would, you would be chuckling at how these kids were, but they told us that we were the JV team and they told us to go play at this golf course. And the JV coach continued to help us there. And the varsity coach, ran the varsity team and the JV team. And we would play other schools, you know, we would travel around and play other courses and stuff, but we were such misfits and just none of us were any good. And, you know, to play on the varsity team, you had to shoot, you know, the kids averaged between 37 and 43 and uh, the JV team would average, you know, 43 to, to 46 or so on nine holes. And I would shoot about a 50 and uh, just not very good, but it was fun to play and I enjoyed it. And it was, and I didn't learn that there was that I didn't learn that I wasn't the JV team until sometime later. By the way, I did try to keep playing organized baseball, but once I got to what was called Babe Ruth league, at that point, the kids could throw um, curveballs and other types of junk pitches and while I could crush fastballs and changeups all day long, uh, once people could throw a curveball, I struggled to hit. And so I went from being a traveling all-star kid at, at the age of 12 to really struggling to hit the ball, um, batting around 200 as a 13-year-old. I ended up being really good as a first baseman. I could scoop the balls out of the dirt when the, when the other players in the infield didn't throw a perfect ball to first base. But, and, and I had a coach say like, man, if you could just hit, you'd be an all-star dude. You, you, you're so good at first base that, you know, you almost could make the all-star team on defense alone, but I couldn't hit a curveball, and, and I played another, you know, two years, three years. And then uh, I just, I stopped playing, but we did win one more world series and I was the starting first baseman for that team. And I'm really proud of like, we won a lot of championships. I won a bowling, uh, a league when I was a kid. Um, you know, the, the football team never did well. 
We, we lost all of our games in seventh grade and we tied the other really bad team in eighth grade. But in baseball, I tend to, tended to always win and, and again, had that one bowling league championship as well. But, you know, playing golf, I ended up my senior year. Um, there was a kid who got in trouble for using drugs and he got suspended for several games, several matches. And I was the best JV player at that point. And so I got promoted up to varsity and you had to play two or three matches to get your letter. This was my senior year. Cause now I remember barely essentially sneaking in my letter and uh, we had two or three matches. You had to play in two or three matches to get a, a letter uh, to letter in that sport. And so I get moved up to varsity and there's only two or three matches left, whatever the number was. And I played well. I shot like a 45 in both matches. And for me, that's good. Like, I think, you know, my junior, senior year, I was averaging a 47, 48 on nine holes. And I shot a 45, these two matches and uh, my score counted and I ended up getting my letter, Um, which was cool. You know, I was, I was an athletic kid and competitive, but I was slow. And uh, it was interesting to see kind of how all that played out in various sports. When I was a teenager, I, I always, I never really saw myself as a troublemaker. I always perceived myself as being a good kid who wanted to do right by people and by the world. But I also wasn't very popular. I was kind of middle of the road. And when you're in the middle of the road, you, you get your fair share of being made fun of, and you get to avoid being made fun of by chipping in when others are making fun of someone else and the peer pressure of trying to belong, trying to fit in had me sometimes saying things that hurt other people. And, uh, and at times I was the one being hurt and made fun of in, in school when puberty started to kick in, it was me and one other kid who had acne so bad and uh, all the kids would joke around and call us the pizza brothers because our face looked like tons of pepperoni and if a pimple popped, it was cheese and really gross, but I hated it. My face was oily all the time. And I just, I really detested how we humans go through normal stages of life and just being human has you at times being made fun of and marginalized and isolated. I, uh, I started drinking alcohol when I was 12 years old. My cousin who lived a few houses down, his parents had gotten divorced by this point, And he now lived with his mother full time, but with his dad on the weekends. And his dad lived a few houses down from me, but his mom lived across town in another school system. And so we would hang out at my cousin's house on the weekends. We'd sometimes go stay with his mom too. I think his dad got him every other weekend. But we'd go, we still had a ton of interaction with this cousin. I did, my brother did, and his sister, our other cousin. And uh, we also had a best friend. His name was Carlos, and, and he lived uh, in the other school system that my cousin was at most of the time. And we just formed this trio friendship, me, my cousin, and uh, this best friend, Carlos. The three of us were inseparable. 
Uh, I could spend a whole podcast telling you about all the trouble we got into, but I, I do want to share like a few stories and talk about a few, a little bit of this, but I started drinking at 12. Um, we would stay at my cousin's mom's house and she would buy a case of Bush light for us. And her, I, her thinking was that if she put us into a safe space and we could experience these things, we wouldn't be doing these things in other places where we could get into trouble. By the way, I think she was right. But we would uh, go over to her house, me, my cousin, my best friend. She'd have us a case of beer. We always liked Bush Light. And we'd drink eight of them a piece. And we'd find a fourth person and we'd play euchre. Um, I remember writing a lot of poems around this time in my life. And I really liked my poetry. Don't have any of that anymore. Couldn't read any of that to you. But, and I'm sure it's shit, but... At the time, I thought I was really seriously beginning to form ideas in my head and, and finding ways to express myself and articulate ideas well. Um, I, I was always smart. I'll, I'll talk about my education here in, in a minute. But uh, my cousin, not my cousin, my best friend, uh, he had two older brothers and decent age difference. And the oldest brother, anytime we wanted, he would go pick up beer for us and drop it off to us. And so we would get together on the weekends and my best friend would have his brother drop us off a case of Bush Light. And again, if there, if there were two of us, we'd drink 12 each. And if there were three of us, we'd drink eight each. And we were just always hanging out, always doing fun things. I started using, uh, I started selling drugs, started using weed when I was 14 I started selling weed when I was 16. I used LSD for the first time when I was 16 years old. I never thought of those experiences as bad. Um, I, I, I realized I could get in trouble. I realized that what I was doing was against the law, but I never thought it was bad. And I knew that those experiences were deeply enjoyable. I felt a lot of uh, connection and, with my friend group. I actually was, my, my cousin's mother ended up moving from this other school system to a whole nother uh, city uh, township a little ways away called Margareta Township. And so now my cousin was 20 minutes away from me rather than 10 minutes down the road. And I was really popular in his school system. I ended up taking on the nickname of Dollar Bill. And often these kids would come see me when they needed alcohol. And I would almost always have a case of beer in my trunk and I was always making a lot of money because I made good money at my uh, restaurant job. And then I took a second job with McDonald's, which is where I met my, my future wife. And so I had two jobs, one of them paying almost twice what minimum wage was when every other kid in my school was making minimum wage. And then I had the second job that I was also making, you know, 450, 475 an hour or something. And uh, I always had money, you know, money clip. I, I had a money clip and had hundreds on the outside and then all the smaller denominations in the middle. So every time I pulled it out, people would think I was richer than I was, but I was wealthier than all the other kids in my school system in terms of the jobs they had and the money they were making. I had a really strong work ethic. Uh, like my parents, I, I never missed work. Uh, I also had like an alarm clock in my head. Some people have this. There's our, our brains and our bodies are able to keep time to the point where I would always wake up a couple of minutes before an alarm clock was meant to go off. Or if I forgot to set an alarm clock, it didn't matter. I woke up and went to work to the point where my cousins and my friends to this day will tell you that 
Bill seemed to have this knack for just always being responsible. His body and brain would wake him up whenever he needed to be somewhere. And he would go and, and go to work and carry out his job even after he partied till three in the morning. When I was, uh, you know, 14, 15, 16, this dead end street, at the other end of the street, there was a uh, arcade uh, go-kart track, putt-putt course. It was called Goofy Golf. They, uh, the only thing they didn't have was batting cages, I think. And there was another spot in town that had all the things they did plus batting cages. But one of the things that we would do is that me and the other kids in the neighborhood, we would sneak down to Goofy Golf in the middle of the night, three in the morning. And we would put their go-karts back on their go-kart track. And we would, we found where they had their gasoline stored and we would put gas into the go-karts if they were empty, but we, but most of the time they weren't, most of the time they had gas in them and put them on the go-kart track. We'd start them up and there was nothing else around. It was like a commercial area and there was nothing else around, but, but businesses that were closed and we start these go-karts up and we would just ride them around the track for an hour or two. So much fun. We would take their uh, putt-putt balls out of the creek that people had hit the putt-putt balls into the water. We would collect those, and then we would take our golf clubs out into the field that we lived near. We lived uh, right on the edge of the Erie County Fairgrounds. And in between the fairgrounds and my dead-end street was just this big, wide-open field that we sometimes played baseball in, capture the flag. We built forts. Fantastic childhood. All the things that everyone would think is nostalgic and want to do, me and the kids on my block did it. Um, so we'd steal these putt-putt balls and we'd just go take golf clubs and then just hit these balls and it was just fun as could be. We built forts and uh, built bridges over creeks and I had a friend uh, down the street who built a full-fledged igloo that lasted like weeks and weeks in the winter. We'd pile up the snow and that when the plow would pile the snow up, we'd build little tunnels through the snow. Um, but when I got my driver's license, there was a summer when uh, me and my best friend and my cousin, we used the gas that this Goofy Golf used to fill up its go-karts and we filled up our cars for a whole summer. And so every week or two, we would, you know, however long a full tank of gas lasted us. I drove a, a Chevy Cavalier as my first car. I don't remember what year it was. And then my second car was a 1989 Geo Metro. And I, I'm telling you, this car got 54 miles to the gallon. It was insane. Uh, it was like a little pregnant roller skate. And I, I took some shitty speakers and put, put them in the back of my car, wired them myself. I figured out how to put my own CD player in. So I took out the old deck and put the new one in, put the wiring harness on, wired it to the speakers in the back, didn't have an amp. So the speakers sounded like crap, but it was more bass than I would have had without them. And I had this car that got good gas. And whenever it ran out, me and my cousin, my best friend, we'd always go to Goofy Golf and fill up our cars with this free gas. Again, I was definitely doing something bad at this time. But I just thought it was, you know, we're just kids being kids. And uh, there were times where I would show up to fill up my car with gas and my cousin or my best friend would show up at the exact same moment. We would pull in at the same time, scaring the hell out of each other, thinking the other person was a police officer. 
But in reality, we both had just run out of gas at the same time and went to fill up our cars at the same moment. And so we went an entire summer not paying for gas. Um, we always tried to go to hotels to pick up girls. And, and my best friend was good looking. His, Carlos, he was Hispanic. He was just, just a good looking guy. He had no problem meeting girls and uh, having opportunities to make out with them. And uh, we would go to hotels and hang out by the pool and try to flirt with the girls who were there with their families um, as tourists staying at the hotel to go to Cedar Point. I lived a few miles away from Cedar Point, which was the largest roller coaster park in the world. As far as I know, that's what it's known for. And uh, lots of people come into my town in the summer. And so we'd go hang out at the hotels and there was all these pretty girls and we were always flirting and just a ton of fun. And I, I never got lucky at all, but my cousin or my cousin did a little bit and my best friend, Carlos seemed to just hit it off with girls wherever he went. I'm sorry. I don't generally look at the camera when I'm trying to recall ideas. I just seem to do better if I look down and, and I'm looking over at my screen where I've written all these notes so that I can move through these stories. We had one time where we were walking um, like away from our neighborhood, but close by, there were a few cheap hotels and we were walking behind them. And it was me, my cousin, my best friend, and up on the balcony of this two-story, really it was a hotel or, or motel, I should say, but two-story and up on the second story at the balcony, there were these three girls and they were college age, good looking. And we were like, hey, ladies, how are you guys? And they were like, hey, how are you? And we got chatting and they invited us up uh, to their room. And we get up there and we sit on their bed. It's just a little cheap hotel room, just a bed and a TV and a bathroom, right? And uh, we sit on their bed and we're talking. And we're hitting it off. And um, my wife is the first and only person I had ever uh, had sex with. And uh, I had never gotten lucky before that. But this was one of those opportunities where I could have and maybe should have gotten lucky, right? And uh, and hit it off with these chicks and, and made out with, you know, us three made out with these three. But instead, they, they pulled out some marijuana and uh, we smoked it. And so all six of us are as high as can be. And I sit on the bed and keep talking to these three girls. And I feel like this is, could go somewhere, but I'm... I'm always apprehensive. I'm never the guy in the group to, to push forward. Um, I, I just always feared rejection and never, never felt safe being the leader. And uh, my, my cousin and my best friend are sitting on the edge of the bed and they're high as can be. And they're just watching television. I can't remember what the show was, but you know, Andy Griffith or whatever, something reruns of mash or whatever, but they're, they're watching TV and they're too high to realize that, Hey, there's three college girls here and they're interested in us. And if you two will just help this move along, these three chicks are going to make out with us three, but it never happened. We ended up uh, wasting a few hours and then just excusing ourselves and leaving. And the night came to an end. Um, at one point when I'm 15 or 16 years old, uh, we end up, um, my, my cousin 
his stepsister, because his mom had divorced my uncle and remarried. And the guy she remarried was a Vietnam veteran. And uh, he had two kids. And both those kids were significantly older than my cousin or me. We were about the same age. And his oldest, uh, his daughter uh, was a bartender. She was a bartender at a little bar uh, in town. I'm going to close a little door here. I can hear an alarm in my house and it's just going to annoy me. So let me close it over right back. She was a, a bartender at a little tiny podunk bar in the middle of the, uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And it was a little bar. It had a, you know, this like a U-shaped bar table, chairs all the way around it. And then she was in the center of that with, uh, with all the, the liqueur and, and alcoholic beverages and things. And so my cousin tells me and my best friend, he goes, you know, we can go to this bar. You know, this is my stepsister. She'll serve us. And so by this point, my best friend is driving. I don't think I was driving yet. I'm 15 or 16 years old, but I don't have my license. And uh, my, my best friend uh, drives and we go out to my cousin's stepsister's bar. And we sit there. Uh, I remember being on the, on, the, on the right side of the U. And I'm sitting there and immediately to my right is an older woman. I'm, again, I'm going to guess at the time, a heavier set. Uh, 70, 65, 70 years old. And, and I don't mean any offense. I want to tell these stories because they're either funny, entertaining, informative, and I want to be responsible to not do saying anything unhealthy here, but also I want to tell you this story accurately. And so I'll try to walk that line, but heavier set, um, a little rough. You know, you could tell that this woman had had a rough life. And, uh, she was to my right, to my, uh, left, uh, is my cousin, my best friend and, um, Jeannie, who is the stepsister comes over and says, Hey, what can I get you guys? And I said, what do you think? What should I get? And, you know, we've been drinking since we were 12. It's not like we couldn't handle alcohol. That's not the problem, but we are not only under age, but significantly under age at a bar. And there are other people there. And, uh, I said, what do you recommend? And she goes, I would try this new drink we're doing. It's called a duck fart. And I don't know what's in it. You can look it up. You can actually Google it. It is an actual real drink, but she makes it for me and I drink it and it's strong as can be, but it does have a little bit of like a chocolatey taste to it. It was really good. Um, but I drank that and, and then I had a beer, I think, and, and my cousin and my best friend are, are having drinks. And uh, this lady sitting over to my right, and obviously you're seeing the mirror image, so you're seeing me point to my left, but this lady over to my right, she looks over at me and she goes, how are you doing tonight, young man? And I said, uh, I'm, I'm doing great. How about you? She goes, I'm doing good. She goes, uh, if you're interested, I would love to take you out into the parking lot and make you into a man. And I am totally caught off guard by this. Um, and I look over and I'm like, um, and, and again, it's not that I didn't want to have sex or lose my virginity. It's that this is not the person I want that to happen with. I'm not attracted to this person in the least. And uh, I just didn't want to do that. So I, I looked over, I said, ma'am, I said, thank you, but I think I'm, I'm going to uh, decline. 
And uh, she must have been half in the bag because she immediately goes, do you want to you want to see my titties? And that was her language. Again, not not me trying to be crass or rude. And, you know, I'm going to there are parts of these stories that I just want to represent fairly. So she says, do you want to you want to see my titties? And I I before I could even say no, I'm in the process of going to say no. I look over to say it. And as I go to do that, she is lifting her shirt up. And before she gets them over her chest, I, I turn back to look away, but now I'm looking at the faces of my cousin and my best friend who are staring right through me. It is so obvious and watching her do that. And, um, I, I look at them. I, I know by their facial expression that she has completed the act and, um, and I just looked at my best friend and I said, uh, how was that? And he said, not good. <laughs> and uh, again, no, no offense to the lady. You know, she had to have known we were not 21 years old. She had to have known, maybe anyway, that we were not 18 years old. Um, but she was half in the bag and she did that. But that was a, a fun night that I'll never forget. I remember one night that my... Uh, my aunt and her husband, who I also considered my uncle, I was really close to him and hung out at their home all the time. So while it was my cousin's stepdad, I also viewed him as my uncle and had a good relationship with him. But there was one time that it was the two of us and the two of them uh, at the same bar drinking with his, uh, his daughter as the bartender, and they had drank too much. And they had my cousin who had a, a permit drive all four of us home um, that night. I remember one night uh, I, I had drank too much, used too much uh, weed. I was too effed up. I should definitely not been driving, but I did. And I fell asleep at the wheel and I was going through all of these yards on the left uh, of the street. So I'd fallen asleep and I was driving through these yards and luckily I'd not hit anything. Um, and my best friend who was driving behind me was laying on his horn. And luckily I woke up and got myself back on the road and it scared me shitless to the point where I, uh, didn't fall back asleep the rest of the way home and, and got home. Okay. Um, but I was telling you about, we, we would go to these hotels and try to, to pick up girls and we also were mischievous. So there was one night that we were going through the cars in the parking lot, seeing if any cars had opened doors. And uh, when we found one that did, we would take all the loose change out. And then we got bored of doing that. You know, I don't know what we had, $4 and 80 cents or whatever. And we got bored of doing that. And we uh, went inside to hang out. And most people had gone to sleep by this point. And we obviously didn't look like we belonged, even though we thought we were being sly to the point where a police officer came to the hotel at the behest of the hotel front desk person and began questioning us about why we were there and which room we were in. And we tried to say, you know, we're in, oh yeah, we're in room 132. And immediately, you know, the, the hotel clerk guy can figure out that that's not true. And the police officer ends up uh, arresting uh, us not, not really, but like he takes us into custody, he takes us into his police car and he takes us to the, um, police station. 
And I remember the police seats being plastic and hard. And I never, I didn't know that till that moment. And, but I figured out why, like people being drunk and pissing in the back of a police car, like you need it to be hard so you can clean them off easy and not, not when you're arresting people, allow people to piss all over your soft cloth seats. So they took us to the police station and uh, took us into a holding room. It was like a, not a cell, but like a room. And there were hooks in the room where you could handcuff people to this, to the room in, you know, to the benches in the room, but they just put us in there and had us sit there. And then my dad who had to get up for work at like four in the morning, five in the morning to go to work, he comes and picks up all three of us and takes us back to uh, our house. And we stay the night there, finish up our sleep basically. And my dad was so mad and pissed at us. So that, uh, that night had happened too. That reminds me of a story. Now I gotta go back in time. And again, I'm all over the place. I just hope you're, you're enjoying these. Um, I go back in time and there was a moment where uh, I'm a young kid. I don't know how old, seven years old. It's Halloween and uh, me and my cousin with my parents and his parents who are not divorced yet. And my cousin and I dress up. We were both superheroes. One of us was Batman. I don't remember who the other one was, maybe Superman but we were superheroes and we went trick-or-treating. And when the trick-or-treating was done, my parents dropped the two of us off at a girl's house who was babysitting us. She was 16 or 17. She was agreed to, she agreed to babysit us. She was a regular babysitter for my cousin. My aunt knew her. So she was watching us while my parents and my cousin's parents went out to a Halloween party, costume party. And while they were uh, partying, the babysitter decides she's going to throw her own party. So she invites a bunch of friends over. There's alcohol. They get way too loud. I can so vaguely remember this, this event, but uh, the police end up getting called and they show up and me and my cousin uh, are just innocent bystanders, but this party's being broken up and the police cannot have us staying at the party because this girl and the the friends are all in trouble for their underage drinking and all kinds of things going on. So the police cannot leave us with this, this girl. And so they put me in the back of one police car and they put my cousin in the back of the other scared us shitless. We thought we were being arrested because we're little kids and we don't know any better, except that the police have taken us out to their cars and put us in the back. And, uh, take us to the police station and at the police station, they're trying to be nice to us while they figure out where my parents are. And they don't know where my parents are. Um, my parents have gone to a party, but the babysitter doesn't exactly know where my parents and his parents are at. They take us to the police station. They're showing us around the jail cells, but we're crying because we think like we're arrested. We're in jail because this is also foreign to us. And what little understanding we have as kids about, police and how things work is we got arrested. We're put in the police cars. We're now at the police station. We're being put in the jail cells. And uh, in the meantime, they finally figure out where my parents are. And this cop walks into the, the bar where this costume party is being held. Everybody's in costume and this cop walks in and he is at, when he walks in the door, he's asking the people at the front door, Hey, I'm trying to find a Mr. And Mrs. Real. Meanwhile, my dad sees somebody walk in dressed like a police officer 
and loud enough so that everybody in the place can hear, he says, look there, some guy dressed as a pig. And immediately following, the guy then says, is there a Mr. or Mrs. Real here? And my dad, with his tail between his legs, has to go up to this police officer who he's just called a pig and acknowledge that he's Mr. Real. And they explain the situation to him. And my dad comes to pick me up at the jail cell. Um, we'd been there an hour, maybe an hour and a half, scared. And uh, my dad, when he got there, he could quickly see that us two kids were scared to death and that it hadn't been handled appropriately. And he chewed out the police officers for what, for not being more aware and sensitive to how these kids would have perceived all of this. Um, I'm going to skip now to kind of education. When, when I went to school, I, I I'm a smart person. I don't mean that as bragging. People have been following this podcast long enough to know that, um, that there's a certain level of intelligence and a certain level of uh, information retainment that I, I have. When I was in school, I, my grades were never good, ne never bad, but never good. I was always just kind of a C student. Um, but I don't know what grade it was, third grade, fourth grade, whatever it is, they, they did the standardized IQ testing. And so everybody would take an IQ test and they would, you know, a hearing test, vision test, you take an IQ test. And when the day came to give every kid their IQ results, everybody was looking to this kid in my class, Andy Walker, um, because Andy was thought of by everyone in the class as this is the smartest kid. And as they hand back the results, I open mine up. I look over at his and his is like a 141 or 142. And when I open mine up, I've got an IQ, it says of 145. And throughout my life, whenever I've done IQ test, uh, either, either ones in school or, um, just me and my brother or my dad taking them at home to kind of like compete against each other. I, I always scored between like a 132 and a 145. And generally, like, I don't know what Mensa is, but I would say I'm just below that. I, I don't, I, I'm certainly not those guys. Those guys are just so brilliant. And when I see somebody who is just born with really high intelligence, I'm, I'm, I'm really um, amazed and uh, to some degree jealous of folks who have that. But my IQ is good. My IQ is a significantly high IQ. And I just remember going through school and I just didn't care enough to be the best student. I knew that I could skate by on my intelligence, not apply myself, and I would do fine. So I never did homework, never and was always in trouble with teachers for never doing homework unless it was absolutely mandatory. And then I was often doing it the morning, you know, the next morning before school started or doing it the class before it was due. And I would be, you know, a C student. Once in a while, I'd get a B. Once in a while, I'd get a D, but a C student. My parents promised me $100 for every A I would get, and I just never got one. Um... In my, you know, in school, I'm just trying to think here, um, eighth grade, Mr. Piper was the math teacher. I think it was eighth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, might have been eighth. 
he was the math teacher and I literally don't, don't do any homework in the class, but you know, I ace my midterm and when it gets time to the final exam, um, I get a 98% to the point where the next day in class, uh, Mr. Piper asked me and this one other kid to stand up and he goes, these two kids were the only two kids who scored above a 95. And I forget what the other kid's name was, but he had a 96 and I had a 98%. Meanwhile, like I, I knew things. I, I, in third grade, second or third grade, Mrs. Finley was the teacher. And I, I created a formula. I figured out in my head a formula that did the math stuff we were doing at the time faster than the teacher could do it or show us to do it with this formula that they have. And I had a different formula. I'm like, what well, I could just, if I just did this and added that and do this, then I come up with the same answer they do, except it takes less time. And she had me explain it to the class. And then we looked for an exception to the rule and we were able to find one. This formula didn't always work, but then I continued to use it because it worked almost all the time. And, and I was always like that. I was always deconstructing things and trying to figure new things out and trying to figure out why this worked or why that happened. And I was a big fan of history. I loved history classes, loved my government classes. I was always exceptional at math. Even when I went to college, um, I always did really well at math, even though I didn't apply myself and didn't do the homework. It just figuring out math in my head always came easy to me to the point where even in the pawn shop, uh, my boss... Uh, my boss is my uh, uh, Chris Bloxham and Don Bloxham. They're both very smart people. They are high intelligence people. And as some math thing would be going on in the store, they would get ready to put it into a calculator and I would just say the answer. Um, and I would be super close, even if it was a decimal point. I'd, you know, 17.3 and they would do the math and be 17.4. And they'd be like, how do you know that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I just have this knack for, for doing math quickly in my head. Um, one of my skill sets and, uh, school came easy to me, but I was always taking the, the lazy way out. Um, junior year, I was flunking Spanish and the Spanish teacher told me like, you're going to fail Spanish. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. And I said, watch me. And so leading up to two weeks, leading up to the final, I just, for the first time in Spanish class applied myself. And I spent two weeks trying to memorize everything I could. And I ended up getting a C in the uh, C in the class and the, on the test, I mean, and then I think I got a D in the class, which was good enough to pass, but I got a C on the final having literally screwed around the entire semester on, uh, on Spanish class. I've always retained information. Well, when I read things, I, my brain knows what the important facts are and it's able to store them and I'm able to recall them. I had a 2.5 in high school. I ended up going to Bowling Green State University, their Firelands campus, which used to just be a community college. But then Bowling Green State University essentially bought it out and made it a second campus of their of their school. And I went there to be an elementary teacher. So I took the education program. 2.5 in high school. Um, I would cheat on test at times. I had, uh, I don't, I'm going to take it here, but the pens in school were the clear ones and we would screw off the top me and a couple of other kids and we would write our notes super small, roll it up into a, like a circular shape and then stick it down into the pen so that when you did your test, you could see the answers there. And I used that a few times and cheated, but had a 2.5 in high school. And then I went to Bowling Green State University 
I'm three and a half years into my education program and I've got a 2.9. But the problem is that Bowling Green State University requires you to have a 3.2 or higher or be in the top 100 of your class in order to uh, be able to take your methods classes and your student teaching, which is the last six months of your program. And that is the last step before you actually become a teacher. But to go from 2.9 to 3.2, that's, that's a big jump um, that late into your education. And so I would have had to have taken several extra classes. I would have had to have aced them uh, to bring my school average up. And right at the same time, my wife gets pregnant. We're living in an apartment complex, really shitty apart apartment complex, but near her parents' uh, neighborhood. And suddenly the roof starts leaking. The apartment managers won't fix it. I mean, I go weeks and weeks of rainstorms being stored in like big giant trash cans. And my wife has this baby and none of this is getting fixed. And, uh, it was just horrible, horrible living condition for a brand newborn, brand new newborn baby. And I realized that my education wasn't going the way I wanted. And uh, I went to another school just to sit down with their, uh, their counselors essentially to see if I could transfer. And it was uh, Ashland University, which was like an hour away from me. But they also had an education program. And when I went to them to try to transfer, they said, like, yeah, like, we don't we only require a 2.5. You're going to be great here. Um, but uh, the problem is going to be is that these six classes are not going to transfer over. So now you're going to want to go to the other college, which is a mile down the road. You're going to want to take a bunch of classes from them that we will accept as replacements for the ones you're losing. And by that time, I just realized I'm going to have another year in my education. I've got this newborn baby. I'm, I'm working for my wife's uh, uh, father, uh, building garages for him, but I didn't enjoy the work and I didn't really want to do it. And so I started looking for a job that I could take care of this you know, new family that I've got. And so I found a floor covering store that was hiring and I went and did the interview and got hired. And so I work there, but I'm not good at it. I'm no good at doing it because, and it's, it's because this uh, thing that's always carried with me, which is when uh, rubber meets the road and it's time to apply myself, I would, if there is, if my brain needs to be on in this moment, then it will be on and I will do fine at whatever task is in front of me. But if I don't have to have my brain on, I won't. I'll, I'll skirt by. I will just take it easy. It's the way I'm programmed. If things, if things can be accomplished relatively easily, that's what I'll do. And uh, this job, you could leave your brain off almost all the time. But every once in a while, you had to catch the details. You would go out and measure a home for new floor covering. You'd put carpet in those rooms and hardwood in those rooms and vinyl in those rooms. And you had to know what the substrate was. You had to know what we were going to do and how we were going to handle the, the, the trim around the floor. We had to know what kind of tools to bring if it's a concrete floor and other kinds of tools we bring if it's a wood floor. And you had carpets that had patterns to them and you had to match things up. And, and I, there were just, I just didn't have my brain on all the time. And I wasn't very good at this job. 
And on top of that, I'd been there 16 years and uh, was still the lowest seniority salesperson on staff. And on top of that, I was bullied. Uh, There was an older guy there. He was in his 50s when I started and 60s by the time I left. And he just didn't like me. And I don't, I don't know why. And I would go, he would just bully me. He would, he would uh, pull my chair out when I went to sit down. He would take uh, phone call notes that when there was a phone call for me and the note was written out like, hey, Bill, call the Johnsons back about their carpet order. And he would take that and he would tape it somewhere uh, underneath things on my desk and then put stuff on top. And so it would take me sometimes half a day that I would finally find the note. So he was trying to sabotage me. And I would go to my boss and I would say like, hey, uh, anything you can do about this? Because there any way you can like, like this guy is treating me like shit and this just doesn't seem like it's should be tolerated. And he would come back to me and go, yeah, I can't really do anything. That guy started here before I was even born. And that was true. Um, the owner of the company, uh, it was him and his sister. They had inherited it from their father. And uh, he was in his 30s. And this old guy had started there before he was even born. And, uh, and I was at a point where I, I didn't have my college education. I couldn't go somewhere else. This is the job I can hold. Like I would apply for other things. I flew to Minnesota once uh, to be a manufacturer's rep for a bunch of product lines inside Menard stores in uh, Indiana and Ohio and Pennsylvania. And I was flown out and the interview went well. And the guy said, I'm you're hired. I'm going to offer you the job. And then I flew back to Ohio. And in the meantime, some other person with more manufacturing rep experience, because I had none, um, applied and they ended up, they did make me an offer, but they lowballed me knowing they had this other guy now who'd come in after I had done my interview. And, uh, when I didn't take the low ball, I countered what was, what was reasonable and what we had talked about. And he said, I'm sorry, but here's what happened. And he said, he said, I'm, tar- I'm sorry, but this entire thing has been a boondoggle. And it's the moment in my life where I learned the word boondoggle. And I've always been interested in big words. Uh, my dad always used the word immaculate uh, in moot. Um, he had used other words too that were bigger words that you don't traditionally see in, in normal day-to-day conversation. And I'd always been uh, entertained by and fascinated by the human language. And uh, he said, this, this is the whole thing had been a boondoggle and uh, I had to look up what boondoggle meant, but it's a useless exercise, something that was just essentially a waste of time. So I'm working at this floor covering store and I don't have a college degree. And these guys are paying me enough that I can barely get by but it would be too damn scary to quit and to go anywhere else. And I get lucky because I start this podcast back in 2012, Mormon Discussion Podcast, the original podcast that this umbrella uh, was created with. And a group of family members who really loved the podcast invited me to go to Henderson, Nevada to put on a presentation for doubters. They, They did a beautiful job putting this on. Again, this is the the Bloxham family, uh, but this is uh, Clay and and Heather Bloxham, 
who lived in Henderson, Nevada, and and they, along with his brother Chris and his wife Dawn, uh, are, facilitated me coming out with my wife to Henderson, Nevada. They put us up in the Aria in Vegas the first night. We hung out with them the next day. Um, then we went to Henderson, and they did this fireside where they had invited all these people from the Vegas and Henderson area who had, they knew had doubts and wanted to work out their questions with the church. And uh, in, in doing that, um, when I got to the house, they put a dinner on at like 6 p.m. And then at 7 p.m. in the backyard, they set up all these chairs and all these people come with doubts. And they, they give me a chance to kind of give a little brief intro and then we open it up to a Q&A. And these, I don't know how many people were there, 40 or 50 maybe. And they're all sitting in these chairs and they're all asking questions. Book of Abraham, treasure digging, polygamy, all of it. Kinderhook play, all of it. And um, my way of handling those things was to absolutely treat the doubter as you're not crazy. This shit doesn't add up. And I'm going to give you the apologetics. I'm going to explain to you how the apologists deal with it. I'm going to tell you that that's the way I lean. I lean towards trying to make this work because I want to be Mormon. But I will not. I will not say a negative thing about you and how you're handling all of this. It is so reasonable to be disturbed by all this shit you find in Mormonism. This weekend just goes so fantastic that the Bloxham brother who lives in uh, Southern Utah, says, hey, Bill, like we've just gotten along with you so good. Like we spent one night walking the strip in Vegas, my first time in Vegas, my first time ever doing anything fan- like, like high end. You know, I'm walking Vegas. These guys put us up in the Aria. They bought us the $40 buffet in the morning. We played some craps and blackjack. I'd never been to a casino. Uh, actually, it was craps and roulette. And uh, they just treated us so good. They just, like, we were just being spoiled on this trip. And they said, you know, we've gotten to know you on this trip, and we can tell you're a good person. We, is there any chance you'd be interested in coming to Southern Utah to work for the company that we own? And it's Family Pond. And uh, I said, you know what? I've always been looking for some chance to improve my life. And... Uh, That's, that's, you know, that's what happens is they, they treat us so good and they, we throw numbers around and we, me and my wife talk about it over a couple of nights and we agree to what they could pay us. And, uh, they end up taking us, uh, bringing us to Southern Utah for like a three day tryout. And I hated the job. I hated being on my feet. I, I could, I learned it quick. Like they were like, man, you really understand this computer system. And we're only on the afternoon of day one. Um, so they could tell I was going to be good at it. And they said, Hey, you know what? If you want this job, here's, you know, we're taking, we're trying it out for three days. Let us know. Meanwhile, the, the wives took my, uh, my wife around and showed some of the houses and properties that were available. So we could get a feel of how far our money could go. And uh, I hated it, but it was the once in a lifetime chance for me to get out of the rut that I was in. 
So I agreed to take the job. And on the way back to the airport, they put us on the payroll and said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to start you on payroll right now. Go back home, put your two week notice in, you know, whatever you need, we'll pay for the U-Haul to bring you out here. They, they spoiled us to death to make this happen. And they went above and beyond to get us out there. I went back home and went into my flooring store job the next day. And I took this brother and sister who owned the store. I, I said, can I talk to you guys for a minute? We went in the office and I said, Hey, well, I was out in Utah. I got a job opportunity and you know, here's what it is. Here's what it pays. But you know, I'd really, I, I don't like to change. I don't like to try new things. I'm, I'm scared. So, and I, I didn't say it that way. I said it in a way that was intelligent and not showing my cards exactly, but basically like, Hey, if you guys want to keep me, what, like, like, please, by all means, make me an offer. And the, the guy and this brother sister duo said, no, nah, I, I think best thing would be for you just to pack up your stuff and go home now. And so I did, I packed up my stuff, felt so much shame doing that. I'd been there 16 years. I never expected them to just immediately let me go. And you could see the sister was disturbed, but the brother is the stronger voice. And they said, like, you can just, you can just take off today. Just go ahead and pack up your stuff and go. And so I packed up my things, drove home, packed up my clothes, went to Walmart, bought a few snacks, including a bunch of like tuna fish and crackers. And then told my wife, like, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go the next morning and drive to Utah and start this new job so that we don't, we don't have a moment of not, you know, not doing the right thing here. So I ended up next morning driving to Utah. I stopped. It's a 24 hour drive. It took me 30 hours to get there because I stopped at a rest area and slept for five to six hours, five hours. And then I stopped in Colorado at a restaurant and uh, had a breakfast, had one paid meal the whole way there. And otherwise I just ate tuna fish and crackers and tried to get there as quick as I could. And then, then a very, then I took the rest of that day off when I got to Utah. And then the next day I started at family pond and lived with my, uh, my new boss for a few days. And then I moved in with some friends that we had back in Ohio, but who had moved to Leverkin, Utah and about a half hour away from where I would work. And, and I moved in with them for about a month until my wife and kids had packed up the house and moved out with me. Um, so there's that. I started the podcast back in 2012 because uh, I was a sitting bishop in Ohio and uh, I reached out to John DeLynn. He had just interviewed Brant Gardner and talked about the translation method of the Book of Mormon. Brant had just published his book on, the, on, on that. And I just found DeLynn's podcast so interesting, so intriguing. Like he was sitting down with Bushman and uh, Terrell Givens and, uh, now here's Brant Gardner. And I just went through all the ones I thought were interesting, mostly historical type conversations. And I found, you know, Bushman being so honest about the mess. And I was like, man, I've never up until this moment, I've never heard anybody talking about the things that I knew existed because I'd been reading about them even before I was baptized and then I heard Terrell Givens and I'm like, man, this guy describes a, a nuanced Mormonism that gives me room to breathe. I'm going to go ahead and just, this is my Mormonism. And so if you go back and listen to the early episodes of Mormon Discussion, for instance, you'll see I created an episode called True and Living Church, where I took several concepts that Terrell Givens had discussed in that John DeLynn conversation. 
I remember I was traveling over. I'd already listened to it. Again, I started the podcast. We'll, we'll kind of explain this, but I started listening to Delin. I'm a sitting bishop and Delin interviews me. But then later on, when I start my own podcast, the Terrell Givens uh, conversation with Delin, I was traveling on a ferry over to an island because I, I worked in Port Clinton, Ohio. You hear Kara Burrell talk about how her family lived in Port Clinton. And because I lived in Sandusky and worked in Port Clinton, Kara saw me because I lived in the same area she lived in as a trusted source. And it's the reason that she gave my material a chance. But when I worked at Port Clinton at that Young's floor covering store, I was sometimes responsible to travel over on the ferry and go to the islands and measure Middle Bass Island, Putin Bay Island, Kelly's Island. And it gave me a beautiful chance to listen to podcasts. And it's all I did. I listened to all these BYU talks and conference talks. And I just always was wanting to fill my brain with Mormonism. Um, and it worked out great. At the end of the day, I wouldn't change a, a, a goddamn thing. Um, but it helped me to uh, know Mormonism inside and out. I just knew the things that only the top 15 or 20 people in Mormonism know. And, uh, and I'm sorry about that. My, my wife is sending some text messages. Um, but um, I remember re-listening to that Terrell Givens and writing out all the cool concepts from that conversation and then creating the episode, The True and Living Church, when I try to create a space for a nuanced Mormonism rather than this old McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith bullshit. And uh, 2012, I start the podcast because I'm listening to all of this Delin material. He interviews Brant Gardner and you could see John was starting to get more and more agitated. And as he did the Brant Gardner interview, it's the first time I really see him pushing back and being a little, a little bit of a negative emotional energy. And so I email him. I go, hey, John, Delin, my name is Bill Real. I'm a sitting bishop. And I just think your podcast is amazing, but I wish you could figure out a way to be more faithful, more positive. And John messaged me back and said, you're a sitting bishop. I'd love to interview you. And so he did. And if you go back and you listen to, I don't know uh, what those earliest ones are, I can look them up here real quick. I just type in Bishop. Um, let's see here. Maybe 363 and 364. So episode 363 and 364. Bishop Bill Reel on being a Mormon bishop, a critique of Mormon stories and resolving faith struggles. And as I listened to that convert, as I, as I, as I participated in that interview with John DeLynn on Mormon stories, I just realized like maybe this podcast thing isn't that hard. And I went to Walmart afterward. Uh, I thought about it for a day or two, went to Walmart afterward, bought a Logitech uh, headset and mic and signed up to do a podcast on Podbean and uh, started recording episodes. And I started with things that I was really interested by, which was the kind of plan of salvation, the role of grace, because I'd read a lot of Stephen Robinson and Brad Wilcox, uh, Robert Millett. And I was really intrigued by that perception of grace, which was much more beautiful and loving and inclusive, but very different from anything that had been said inside of Mormon channels, uh, uh, 
authoritative and correlated Mormon channels. And so um, I started recording episodes. And by episode four or five, I get I start getting messages from people who are listening who say, man, I really like what you're doing. One of those, by the way, was Brittany Hartley. She was one of the very first people who messaged me. And today she's my co-host on the Almost Awakened podcast. In 2014, we turned the podcast into a nonprofit. Uh, sometime in that range, I do the episode uh, uh, Our Bad Days, which I'm, I need to go back and listen to, but it was it was one that people really gravitated towards. It's when donations started to come in a little bit. Um, I think I raised maybe $10,000 that year. We become a nonprofit. And at that same year, the Bloxums bring me out to Henderson, Nevada to put on the fireside. Um, Chris and Don Bloxum offer me a job. Um, 2015, April, I think, is when we actually move out to Utah. And I just want to say, like, how beautiful all of this has been. If you would have sat down and said, hey, Bill, um, from that moment you went to that presentation in Henderson that you put on, if you could write out how your life would go from that moment forward and you said, like, let's write out a thousand ways it could go. It has absolutely no ifs, ands, or buts gone the best way. It has been the best way it could have gone. And if you said, Bill, like, let's hop in a time machine and go back in time and let's, uh, let's let you talk to your younger self and you can tell him to do anything different. And I'll tell you right now, I, I would go back in time maybe to go find a good sandwich at a restaurant that closed or something, but I wouldn't bother my younger self at all because I wouldn't want a single damn thing to change. All of this has been so beautiful. And I just want to kind of wrap up saying that I'm honored to be a voice in this community. I'm honored to be a person that people go like, Hey, I don't know how to explain this thing, but if you go listen to what he said in this particular episode, it dis- it articulates what I would wish to say very well. And so I'm I'm I've been really proud of the life that this has been. I've been really proud to be in this space where I help people unravel the messiness of Mormonism. And I will spend the rest of my life uh, I will spend the rest of my life trying to help people make sense of this thing. Um, and I really hope uh, that we produce a ton of great content going forward because I know there's a hell of a lot of great content behind me. Um, I've been lucky too. There have been moments along this journey where I got burned out and I was just about on the verge to quit. And in one of those moments, probably the one that was the most serious is the moment that Radio Free Mormon and Alan and Katie Mount come into my world. And what I realized was I, I said, what if like, like John had a thoughtful faith with Gina Colvin and Mormon Matters with uh, Dan Witherspoon. And I've uh, many, I always knew, I always knew there was wisdom in not reinventing the wheel, always see what works and take things that work and utilize them. And so I thought this formula of having other podcasters within an umbrella gives you more longevity. And uh, I have 
uh, been lucky enough to have Alan and Katie come along with Marriage on a Tightrope, um, RFM to come along and start Radio Free Mormon. And so I've been lucky all along the way to have other people who are deeply impressive, have a, have a high level skill set, and to be able to be connected to them as they also produce incredible things. I've had so many and cool opportunities to meet interesting people, go to dinner with D. Michael Quinn, go to dinner with Terrell and Fiona Givens. Um, I've been lucky. We had an early sponsor, Costa Rica Travel Pass, which was a gentleman by the name of uh, John Montgomery. And John was a huge supporter of our, of our podcast early on. He sponsored us. And um, before we were a nonprofit, we ran advertising for the Costa Rica Travel Pass. Um, and then, you know, the pawn shop, uh, at places along the way has been quite a, uh, an employment opportunity because the Bloxham's always gave me room to do the podcast and work there at the same time. So in, on days when work was slow, I was free to use that free time to prepare and carry out content and to run the administrative side of this nonprofit. I've been lucky to just know people, um, you know, to know people like Jonathan Streeter and Lindsay Hansen Park. Um, De John DeLynn's been a huge positive influence in my world. Uh, I've been lucky. I've had so many cool friends from Arizona and Southern Utah, of course, but the Henderson Vegas area. And, uh, it really is this community on this side of things that makes this all work. And, and we're lucky because ex-Mormonism's figured out how to do it. And Scientology hasn't exactly, ex-Scientology and ex-Jehovah's Witnesses haven't exactly figured out how to do it. But somehow ex-Mormonism nailed it. What a vibrant community. And sure, it has its flaws, but incredible people who because of their uh, feeling deceived and betrayed and having to re, uh, reconstruct an entire identity, there is just a collective amount of compassion, understanding, and inclusiveness that I am just thrilled to be a part of. So I'm going to wrap up this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed uh, these stories, um, but I hope it gave you a chance to know me a little better. And uh, I hope I didn't offend anybody, um, but I'm just grateful. And folks, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to spend the rest of my life helping people deconstruct Mormonism. And uh, if, you, if you think we're doing a good job of that, if you're proud of the material that we have put in up to date, up to this moment, and I would invite you to become a, a donor. I would invite you to become a recurring donor of Mormon discussion incorporated the entity. I don't, I get paid a salary by the board and we bring in uh, enough to uh, justify that salary. Any money brought in isn't for me. I've got a salary that'll happen regardless. So long as things don't drop off. But what I would like is to be able to uh, take care of all the podcasters in this umbrella. And so if you have a favorite podcast or a favorite podcaster, might you consider going to mormondiscussions.org 
or Mormon Discussion Singular Podcast.org. So Mormon Discussions with an S.org or Mormon Discussion Podcast.org. Click the donate button. Pick your favorite podcast in the drop down window of the donate section and uh, send send that podcast or that podcaster five bucks a month. And uh, if you like what we do, and we're going to continue doing it, because I think this is a great way to spend a life, is helping people to know they're not crazy, to know they're not alone, and to give them the tools and resources in order to take Mormonism apart. And I hope that as you get to know me and the other podcasters under this umbrella, that you'll recognize that they're pretty damn good humans. And they're worthy of your trust, and they're worthy of you taking the things that they say seriously. Thank you, and have a great day. Thank you.